Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp. For the upcoming series of conversations, we are going to explore how the common good is being enacted in local, tangible, and relational ways. If this is your first time with us, we suggest you start with season one, but you can also check out the show notes for background and bios if you want to jump right in. Today's conversation is with Mike Mather. John and Peter interviewed him on the Abundant Community webinar about his asset-based work with his church in Indiana. I can remember when we first uh, began thinking about what would a community be like if you thought in terms of abundance rather than scarcity. It was like a lead balloon. It did not float at that time. But we did get one call from a small city in Indiana where there was a parish and uh, two pastors who wanted us to come down and spend some time telling about the work we had been doing on abundance. And lo and behold, when I got there, it was Mike Mather. And so, Mike, you responded first in all of this adventure and thinking about abundance. But the thing that I have always noticed about you is that you have never had a common thought in your life. Somehow you come at things in a way that is different than almost everybody else. And I thought it might be useful at the beginning to ask you, how did you get that way? What happened to you? Um, I think I started out thinking fairly conventionally. When I first came to Broadway Church here in Indianapolis, I thought I was coming to work in the inner city and helpful in low-income communities. Because what everybody needs is a 26-year-old with 19 years of education to solve their problems. (laughs) Phil Amerson had asked me to come and work with him here at Broadway and to run the outreach program here in our low-income, low-wealth community here in Indianapolis. And so we and all the traditional programs that lots of churches did. And when I came here, we were running a summer program, which was basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. And very painfully, we changed. It took a couple of years, but we built each week around a spiritual principle. And we started every day with devotions and we ended every day with devotions. We had 250 young people, nine to five every day. John, me thinking very conventionally along these ways. And people were affirming me with that all the time. Um, We got a lot of attention for it. People felt great about what we were doing. And people in the church did. People in the community affirmed us. It all felt good. But the last nine months I was here in 1991, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four block radius around the church. And it kicked the heck out of me. And it kicked the conventional thinking, I guess, out of me in a way. And so I left here with this question in my mind about what can I do better? How can I do this better? How can I actually do something that might be useful? I was sent up to a low-income community in South Bend, Indiana, to a small church with about 40 people in it. And we had a food pantry. And when people came to the food pantry, we asked people how poor they are. These were the type of questions we'd asked in Indianapolis, you know. And so people would tell us, well, my income's $600 a month and my expenses are $1,200 a month. Well, there wasn't anything we could do with that information (laughs) at all. We came to Pentecost in 1992 and we read that passage in scripture from Acts uh, about the Pentecost. And later at lunch, this woman says to me, you said up there that Peter reading from the book of the prophet Joel said that God's spirit flowed down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I thought, man, I'm a great preacher. It's a half an hour later. And she remembered 
doctors what I said. I'm awesome. And I said, that's right. She said, so how come you don't treat people like that? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, when people come to the food pantry, you ask people how poor they are. If you believe God's spirit poured down on all people, how come you aren't asking that? We started asking people who came to the food pantry, 10 pages of questions. Actually, John, it was something you had put together in Chicago, I think, um, from Lawndale neighborhood that they used as used for people um, in laundromats. So it asked people 10 pages of questions about, have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Have you done it because you've had a job? Because they're members of your family? Can you fix a toaster? Can you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? You cleaned up after more than 10 people. And we asked three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do it? What three things would you like to learn that you don't already know? And who besides God and me is going with you along the way? One of the first people who came was a little woman who lived half a block from the church named Adele Almagir. And she told us she was a good cook. So we said, prove it. She said, what do you mean? Well, cook for the custodian, secretary, and pastor lunch on Friday. It was great. And she cooked for more and more and more things in the community. Studebaker Elementary, had a PTA meeting, Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center, had an open house, Memorial Hospital, had a press conference, all needed food. Well, then the Chamber of Commerce called. We want to have an all-day meeting of our leadership program in your church building. We said, that works. They said, since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. We said, we would prefer you use our caterer. So we took 20 bucks and bought her a thousand business cards. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are, we would have all ended up poor for it. And we would have missed a lot of great food. After you get done asking a person all these questions about what they can do, do you notice any effect on these people of that very process itself? Sure. When people come to us before, we were always asking what people were missing and people didn't have. They came in with their heads down and they walked out with their heads down. At first, people didn't believe we really wanted to know what people were gifted at. But you start asking 10 pages of questions and people start to believe, well, maybe you are serious. And people then start lining up and tell you what they love to do, what they care about. And when somebody tells you they're a good cook, you have follow-up questions, right? Like, what do you cook well? Well, they either bake or they grill out well, or they do this or that. Let me ask you, did you shut down the summer program? 250 kids is a lot of kids, all right? What price did you pay for shutting down the summer program? When I came back in 2003 to Indianapolis, we did shut it down, actually. And there was, yes, so the price to pay was twofold. One was there were parents in the neighborhood who were like, hey, we used to drop off our kids here. How come we can't do that anymore? And there were people in the church who really loved what we did. And so we're like, hey, how come we're not doing this anymore? And what we would say to both people inside the walls and outside the walls of the church is, if you want to do this, do it. Um, If you want me to do this, that's a different question. But we did a different thing. What we did was we hired young people who live in our neighborhood and we paid them to meet their neighbors. They do three things. They name the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions they find in the lives of their neighbors. The second thing is they bless them. They publicly celebrate their neighbors. And the third thing is they connect them to other people who care about the same thing. 
So if they find cooks, they get the cooks together. And if they find people who love to fish, they put them together. If they find engineers, they put them together. They just put people together more and more and more just around the things people commonly love and care about. So it replaced what we did before, but it wasn't easy. I have a friend who talks about discernment by nausea. That's what it felt like. We need to change this, but this isn't going to be fun. But people would say, well, why did you change it? And we said, well, what you were doing wasn't very helpful. It wasn't bad. It wasn't hurting anybody, but it wasn't doing anything particularly useful and helping people recognize and see the usefulness of each other. But yes, people did push back against it. People say to me sometimes, well, wasn't that hard? And I say, yes, but I'm a pastor of a church. Everything's hard. The question is, do you want people pushing back against something that you believe in or just pushing back? It also strikes me in, in your choice, you gave up scale. The first thing you said describing the summer camp was how many people there were. And 250 is impressive. Okay. Yes. And you chose something smaller scale, which you felt probably changed the life of the students, the kids, as much as it did the people that they were bringing together. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. In thinking about the importance of falling in love with one another and the ways in which relationship is pitted against scale and scarcity, the words of William Martin provide some context. This poem is called, Do Not Ask Your Children to Strive. Do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. Now, back to the conversation. You're a pastor, Mike, and how do you think about what a church is these days? Well, the way we think about it around here is that it isn't through the programs we've done that things change much. It's by people paying attention to each other and loving each other. I think we think of what we do as a church is keep trying to find ways to get people to fall in love with each other in whatever ways we can do that. So usually that's not through the programmatic effort, but it is through what people do in their lives in the world. And the work that they do, whether it's as a teacher or as a neighbor or as a parent or as a friend, it's those ways that people affect things. And when we pay attention to that giftedness around us, things get healthier, more a little more mutual delight among each other. Another thing is money circulates more. You know, a lot of pastors are in a parental spot. Maybe you chose the job because of that. But I hear a lot of struggle as you move into a more communal way of being. What's your experience of how you handle some people's expectation of you as being father? Several years ago, one of the pillars of our church slammed her fist down on the table at a meeting and said, we do less than we used to. And I said, yes, isn't that great? What I try to do is try to just remind people in every way we can 
So it affects what we do in worship. It affects what we do every time we have a meeting. And by that, I mean, yes, there's pushback, but because in worship every Sunday, we invite somebody who before we might have invited to share something about some need they have. And now we have the same person come, but instead of talking about that, talk about something you love so that people begin to see each other differently and fall in love with each other. The other thing is in meetings we have, we always take time to do that. In fact, at the governing council of our church, overwhelmingly what we do at that meeting is we invite people both from inside and outside the church to come and tell us about some gift that they have, something they care deeply about, something they love, and then we have people do something. There's not a way to do something in the church where there's not pushback, but then when people are busy talking to each other, sharing with each other about what they love, that ends up taking over the conversation. Not that the other conversation still doesn't poke up its head. In fact, John, you were talking about how churches these days are struggling a lot and how do we go forward and with what's happening with the church in the United States. But a way to promote your church is not to say, hey, come help us not die. But instead of what we're talking about is the giftedness all around us in the community, in our um, both inside and outside of our walls, then we spend all of our time trying to keep up with the giftedness. And that's a very different uh, thing to spend our time with. You're focusing their relationship with each other in a positive way. Helps raise more money, we might associate wealth with a desire for strong leadership. And what you're saying, if you're looking for that kind of leadership, you may not find it in me, or reluctantly at times, or accidentally at times. <laughs> yes. But, but actually, this uh, has a positive impact on people's generosity to the church. It not only has a positive reaction for that, yes, but it also has, I mean, we had the Indiana State Department of Health call us just the second year we had started doing this with the young people. When the State Department of Health calls you, you don't think it's going to be a good thing. And they called and they said, hey, we need to meet with you this afternoon. And I said, why? And they said, we'll tell you when we get there. And then they showed up. First, they said, we've been investigating you all for the past four months. Again, this isn't feeling great. Then they said, our job is to make the people of the state healthier and we haven't been doing a good job. And our investigation shows that what you all do actually makes communities healthier. Now, Peter, to go back to your point before, all the funder ever asked us before was how many kids showed up, how many volunteers showed up, how many contact hours you had. Nobody ever asked us, are things actually better? Are people healthier? Is the economy in your neighborhood strong? But other people came and started investigating that, unbeknownst to us, found out that, that those things were true. So you are also saying that getting people connected is improving the economy of your neighborhood. Absolutely. It puts money in the hands of people. Because if, if they find people who are doing hair, right, and they're telling other people about the people who are doing hair, then there's more money going to those people. If they find people doing meals out of their um, kitchen, they get more business directed their way. And if they bring the entrepreneurs together, then those entrepreneurs find ways to encourage and strengthen each other. That yes, helps a dollar circulate longer in our neighborhood before it exits. Especially in the informal economy. 
Absolutely. And Absolutely. so any measure of average income of your neighborhood would not capture that. That's right. But the actual economy yeah. of <laughs> would, would. That's very powerful. Yeah. Yes. Mike, something else that uh, goes in my mind with the gift orientation that you are uh, focused on is in a lot of places, what people do is they say, we want to get people together so that they can, uh, let's say, simply enjoy each other or uh, have a, an annual block party. And uh, there, what they're thinking of is the building of new relationships, sometimes called friendships, and that's a really good thing. If you don't focus on the gifts, you don't get to the kinds of realities that, that you created. It is that you're recognizing that everybody has this valuable, uh, as that gets manifested, that uh, all of the abundance begins to appear. Because uh, I think there's a big difference between being gift-oriented and being interested in just people coming together. The giftedness around us, that once we start seeing it, it increases. It, it's less than it increases. It's just that we begin to see more of it there than we saw before. For example, when I was at Broadway in the 80s, I... I didn't think there were gardeners around here. So I did a thing that's hot now, um, but I was doing it before it was hot. It was community gardens because I thought people around here weren't doing that. But when um, we started paying attention to the giftedness around us, we found that there were over 30 gardeners in just the three block radius around us. It wasn't that we created those gardeners, is that all of a sudden they became clear to us. Rachel, who's the young, uh, one of the pastors I worked with, met with a group of young people who are blind, and she said to them, how does the seeing world treat you? And she said, they said to her, well, that you're using the wrong language. It's not the seeing world, it's the sighted world. And she said, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, just because you have sight doesn't mean you can see. <laughs> yes. That was true for us. I was not seeing that there were gardeners around here and entrepreneurs and cooks and people who love young people and, you know, musicians and poets and everything. So that's, we always say about the asset-based approach that it is at its heart, making the invisible visible. Yes. Just, uh, the, the reverse of a magician. Right? <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the work of Mike Mather, as well as the Common Good Collective, at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by Rabbi Miriam Trillenchamp and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman. See you next time for a conversation with Deborah Putney.